0: Hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls and Doom.
1: So, Cynthia, today I have a crazy, creepy story. Oh, those are my favorites. (laughs) This is actually a true story of a young sex killer. This was in an article from Life Magazine from 1958. Wow, okay. Yeah. You know, we think about the 50s, and it seems like such an innocent time, and Maybe it was, maybe things were just different, but that doesn't mean bad things didn't happen. This is the story of Ronald Marone. On May 23rd, 1957, two young boys were playing behind the edge of town in Fairlawn, New Jersey, when they found the body of a teenage girl. She was only wearing a shirt, a jacket, and both were pushed up to her shoulders. The rest of her clothes and belongings were scattered nearby. Tissues were stuffed into her mouth and a belt was around her neck. Oh my goodness, those poor kids. I know, scarred for life. The Police knew who she was because six days prior, her parents reported her missing. This was Ruth Starr Zeitler, 15 years old. She was a student who attended Fairlawn High School. So that's where the police started their investigation. They questioned her classmates. After only a couple days of questioning Ronald Marone, he confessed. People were surprised. One kid in the neighborhood said, quote, Not that creep. Why would she even go out with him? End quote. Ronald was thought of as an oddball and a loner. He came from a good home, sang in choir at church. People would often comment on Ron's politeness. His mom would come home and he'd have the table set for dinner. He vacuumed, dusted, and took out the trash. At that time, Fairlawn was a new white-collar residential neighborhood, located 10 miles across from the Hudson River. Ronald lived on Elmory Place. It had small brick homes. It was not fancy, but it was quiet and serene. He lived with his mom, younger brother, and stepfather. He preferred to be called by his full name, not Ron or Ronnie. He was very tall, thin, and had an odd eerie smile. People said you'd be talking to him and all of a sudden he'd break into the smile like he's thinking of something else.
0: That's kind of creepy. Right? And he's a student at the school? Yes, he's, he's another high schooler. That's terrifying.
1: His stepfather, Paul Marone, was a production manager at an electric manufacturing plant. He did very well and owned two cars. He was an attractive man and affectionate with the boys. He was seen rustling in the front yard with them or tossing a ball. Ronald's mother could not have been more different. She was thin, with green eyes, a long face, and always seemed to be stressed. She had a dramatic way of tossing her head back and inhaling on her cigarette. They were a close-knit family. They went to church twice on Sunday. They prayed before the meal and later spent half an hour in prayer. Ronald was in youth group that met once a week. Other than that, they didn't do much socially. His mother was born in Newark, the next to oldest of five kids. It was said that she had an unhappy childhood. She had a year of business college and became a secretary and married at 17. That is so young.
0: Oh my gosh. 17. Poor
1: thing. I know. They separated and when Ronald was born, she never went back to her husband. One of her first husband's relatives died in a state mental hospital, a fact that didn't come out until much later. She married Paul Marone, June of nineteen forty one shortly after age four. Ronald began to show signs of disturbing behavior. He was not a happy child. he never rough housed with other boys. he had all kinds of toys, but never played with them. If they put a white shirt on him, he wouldn't play in the mud or grass. His mom said, quote, "Even when he was two and a half, he would just sit on a chair
0: for hours." End quote. Oh, that's something definitely. Nowadays, we'd be like, there are some red flags here. We'd probably exactly look but, into that. But back then,
1: they didn't really talk about or even think about mental health. Right. Paul Morone was a parent who would spank the kids, but it wasn't abusive. And I can believe that because both my parents spanked me. And it, at the time, I was like, this is child abuse. But <laughs> growing up, I, I, I know the difference. Right, right. <laughs> Ron was in private school till he was four. But with a new baby they could no longer afford it so he was sent to public school with the hopes of a better social environment ronald however resented it he received more attention in private school he did well enough his teachers described him as a dreamer and not able to concentrate at seven years old he had to repeat first grade and that's when he did something that seriously scared his parents Cynthia, it's officially fall. We're getting so close to Halloween. I am so
0: excited. Do you know what you're going to be for Halloween yet?
1: I'm bouncing around a few ideas, but I do know the best place to get your Halloween costume, McCabe's Costumes.
0: Yes, they have such amazing high quality costumes for the whole family and they ship right to your door. I love their leggings too. They're so
1: super soft and come in several really great prints. They're the best way to look cute while staying
0: comfortable. And right now, McCabe's is running a special offer for Dolls and Doom listeners. All you have to do is use the code DOLLS10, that's DOLLS10, for 10% off your purchase. McCabe's Costumes also offers free shipping on all orders over $45.
1: That's awesome. In addition to having the best costumes and festive wear, McCabe's Costumes is also a family owned business that gives back to the community. They donate costumes to kids in need who would otherwise not have access to one. And if our listeners would like to participate in this awesome cause, they can make a $30 donation directly on their website. McCabe's Costumes will then match every donation they receive. In addition, McCabe's also supported autism causes and their local
0: Shriners Club this year. I love that so much because not only are you buying something amazing for yourself you also can feel good about giving back and what other costume shop does that
1: exactly so shop for your costumes or festive wear at mccabes costumes and feel good about making the world a happier place at the same time go right now and get your halloween costume festival wear or comfy leggings at mccabescostumes.com that's m-c-c-a-b-e-s Costumes.com. Ronald set fire to the two lampshades that sat on either side of his parents' bed. He claimed he didn't do it, and this time, he didn't get a spanking because his parents were actually too afraid.
0: Wow, that's seven years old, setting yes. fires? Yes. That's scary. Well, we know, we know what to look out for. Oh, yeah. That's one of the signs. It certainly is.
1: Another time, he jumped through a glass coffee table And when his parents asked why, Ron said he didn't know. And that's when they took him to a psychiatrist. He didn't play with kids his own age. When he was eight, he had friends that were four or five years old. If he got hit, he wouldn't hit back. At 17, he still couldn't throw a baseball. At 13, a woman accused him of taking her six-year-old daughter into the woods and removing her clothes. Mm -hmm. Ronald denied it and his parents believed him. As a result, no charges were filed. A year later, a next-door neighbor said someone had broken into their home, put his wife's clothes in the bathtub with hot water running, and put food into the piano and left trash all around the house. Another boy said Ronald told him how he did it, like he wanted to get caught. Later, he admitted to it and felt no remorse. Ron said the woman next door called him Buckteeth. The woman said he imagined it. At this time, Ron was convinced that everyone was making fun of him. His psychiatrist called it idea of reference, a delusion that others are talking about you. It's a leading symptom of schizophrenia. On July 22 1952, Ronald's mom took him to the New Jersey State Diagnostic Center called Menlo Park. He wasn't yet 14. Dr. Brankel felt that Ron was deeply ill and should stay longer for further testing. He was admitted for a month. At first he was fearful but after a while, he began to show signs of aggression, and then out came that eerie smile. Dr. Bronkel said that he'd seen that smile in four other cases. He calls it a hebephrenic smile. It's part of a schizophrenic process. When asked how he felt, Ronald said fine. In order to get him to open up, the doctors gave him sodium amytol and the feelings poured out. He said he felt inadequate and talked about feeling frail, having small muscles. He said he was sensitive about his teeth, and he was sure his parents liked his brother more. He resented doing housework. He was afraid of boys his own age, and he was afraid of his parents' authority. Aside from all of that, he had a normal IQ. The inkblot test revealed the hostility towards women, coldness, and primitive thinking. In one test, he was shown cards with pictures, and he was told to make up a story to go along with them. In one picture, a woman was lying naked on a bed, and a man was standing next to the bed covering his face with his arm. Ronald said he killed her, he didn't like her, and he got mad because she went out with someone else. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Ronald said he choked her, and now he will go to jail and get a life term. It's chilling to think he could have been describing his murder of Star Zeitler five years later. Wow. Dr. Brankle diagnosed him with schizophrenia and recommended he be committed to a mental hospital. However, he didn't officially record this assessment because Mrs. Carr, the social worker, said it was a neurotic personality disorder due to his clinginess toward her. Because he was there voluntarily and only stayed 30 days, it was more difficult to get him institutionalized. So, in Ron's case, they felt that their best plan of action was to reduce stress on him by having his mother in therapy. They found her too overprotective of him because of an underlying rejection of him early on. During an interview, she revealed she was painfully anxious when Ron was away from her. She was always tense and irritable, and they learned she held two facts from them. One was Ron's relative had been in a mental institution and Paul Marone was not his biological father.
0: Hmm.
1: He was almost 14, and he still didn't know.
0: Oh, he didn't know. Right.
1: Ronald didn't know that Paul wasn't his oh, no. biological father. Yeah.
0: Talk about adding fuel to the fire.: Exactly.: that bomb drop. Yeah. Jeez. So when 30 days were up,
1: they had no choice but to release Ron, and the doctor recommended he be chucked on periodically. He told Mrs. Carr to write a letter in a few weeks to see how he was doing, but they never heard back. Mrs. Marone didn't remember receiving a letter, but claims she wrote to them because she told him that Ron had taken her slip, two nightgowns, two dresses, and cut them with a razor and hid them in the basement. In the fall of 1953, Ron began high school. The family moved 4 years earlier. The following spring, a man accused Ron of taking his daughter into the woods and trying to rape her. It even went to trial. But when the girl couldn't positively identify Ron as the attacker, the case was dismissed. The summer of 55, Ron went to church camp in upstate New York. While there, he admitted stealing money, molesting two girls, and vandalizing the neighbor's house. His mother thought that church had saved him and now he seemed happier and more mature. He met a girl at church, and they went out on a few dates, but his mom insists it was all very innocent. Paul got a job near Patterson, and they moved to Fairlawn. Ron was attending church five days a week, and wasn't doing good in school. It wasn't until he got his driver's license that he actually seemed happy. He finally made friends his own age. He hung out with two other boys, and the three of them would drive around, sometimes with girls, and one of them was Star. Ron had never been out with her alone, but he wanted to. She was everything he was not. Lively, attractive, popular, and well-liked. On May 17, 1957, Star went missing. That night, her father called Ron's house. Ron wasn't home. He had gone to see Billy Graham at Madison Square Garden. Oh, wow. Right? The next morning, Ron's mother told Ron Star's father had called looking for her. He claimed he had picked her up at school and dropped her off at a shopping center uptown. Starr's father called again and this time Ron answered and told him what he had told his mother. He insisted he had nothing to do with her disappearance. Paul told Ron, quote, "'You better pray they find this girl,' end quote." The next few days, Ron seemed unworried. Thursday, Starr's body was found. That evening, Ron was taken to the police station However, he was not yet the main suspect. The station was filled with teens. By the time they were done questioning Ron, they let him leave. It was around 2 a.m. The next night, they wanted him to take a polygraph test. At first, his mom refused, but Ron ended up taking it, and when it was done, the officer came out and told his mother she had nothing to worry about. So again, Ron went home. But the next morning, two detectives came to the door and took Ron. In his confession, Ron said he drove to school and saw star. She suggested they take a ride. He drove to the shopping center and claims star was teasing him, opening her blouse, combing her hair and hiking up her skirt. He said he didn't like it, but she didn't stop later. He told his psychiatrist, quote, when she did it, I had bad thoughts. He kept driving and turned down a dirt road, going into the woods and stopping the car. He said that she kept fooling around with her clothes and he told her to stop. He grabbed her by the arms and started shaking her, telling her to stop and she began fighting back. He grabbed her neck and they rolled over into the back and he claimed Star was professing her love to him, begging him to stop. He grabbed her belt and tied it around her neck and pulled tight until she stopped moving. Then he removed her clothes and dragged her body deeper into the woods. He stuffed tissues into her mouth During the next few days, he'd say things to incriminate himself, as if he wanted to get caught. Lab tests would later show that she had been sexually assaulted. However, Ron denied it. He was interviewed by five different psychiatrists. Two said he had underlying personality disorder. The other three said he was not mentally ill, and they all agreed he was legally sane. A sixth psychiatrist was brought in and said Ron was psychotic and suffered from schizophrenia. His parents thought if he stood trial, he wouldn't stand a chance with that creepy smile. But at the same time, they wanted him incarcerated somewhere that he could also get treatment. On September 4th, 1957, Ron was sentenced to New Jersey State Prison for life. Paul Marone was disappointed. He said they got the diagnosis from Menlo Park, which was inconclusive, And if they had recommended Ron to get treatment, he would have done that, but claims all they did was say his wife needs treatment and to let us know how he's doing. Of course, both parties remember it differently. Dr. Brankle says they advised Ron and his mother to seek treatment, and they didn't take it. The Marones say there was no clear advice or warnings. The fact that they took their son for psychiatric therapy is huge in a time where mental illness wasn't widely advertised or even talked about. But at the same time, Menlo Park was one of the country's best institutions. It seems impossible they'd just sweep such a serious case under the rug. Even more worrisome is the fact that we will never know why he killed her.
0: That case is like just full of, in my opinion, things that could have been avoided. Yes. Like, he should have gotten more treatment, no matter whose fault it was that he didn't. It sounds like the parents were trying... To get him help by taking him in the first place. Right. I don't really believe that uh, Star was teasing him. I don't think that she was like taking her clothes off and like flashing him and stuff like that. I don't think that just doesn't ring true to me because if that was really so offensive to him, so bothersome to him, then why? you know, why take her clothes off after she's dead or before she's dead and why sexually assault her. I think that he was the one who, given the fact that he had already, you know, molested several people that we know of. Right. I don't know how he got her in her car. Maybe they were friends. Maybe he, you know, but I don't think she was coming on to him at all. I don't believe that part of his story. I don't either. And it sounds, I'm just
1: guessing, but it sounds to me like They were talking in school, and she said, hey, I want to go to the shopping center. Can you you give me a ride?
0: Right. I I really feel that that's all it was. Right. And they'd hung out before
1: as a group. Right, as a group. This was the first time they were ever alone in the car together. Right.
0: That's a sad case. Yeah, so that's the case of Ronald Marone. Well, I was thinking, since we're doing things a little different today, maybe we could do a throwback and play a little game. Okay, I'd love to. We used to have so much fun um, in some of our earlier episodes. One of my favorites is Two Truths, One Lie. Yes. I was thinking maybe we could do, because, you know, maybe I'm not that interesting, but people do find celebrities pretty interesting. So I was thinking maybe we could do like Celebrity Encounter Edition. Oh, that's a great idea. Okay. Do you want to go first or me? You go first. Okay. All right. Two Truths, One Lie. So I'm going to say two true statements and one lie statement. Okay. Okay. I once had a conversation with Dame Julie Andrews. I once performed for Larry David. And I once kissed Vince Vaughn on the cheek. Which one is the lie? Oh my goodness. The weird thing is I can kind of see you doing all three. (laughs) That's the point of the game. I know, but
1: Mm. I'm going to say you kissed Vince Vaughn on the cheek.
0: Ooh, I wish I kissed kissed Vince Vaughn on the cheek. I did not. That one is the lie.
1: Okay. So, did you perform
0: for Larry David? I did perform for Larry David. Oh, okay. Which is pretty cool. So, a quick short story how it happened. Um, I've mentioned before my sister is a very, very amazing singer and she is, in addition to performing as herself, Andrea Tyler, she also is the number one soundalike Adele impersonator. So she goes literally around the world. She's been to China and back, performing as Adele. And she had this show. I'm one of her backup vocalists for the Adele band, and it's called Experience Adele. And we were performing at this really, really high-end um, community. And right before we went on stage, the person who'd hired us said, oh, by the way, Larry David has a house here. And he's in the audience. I mean, literally like five minutes before we went on stage, we're told. No pressure. Right. No pressure at all. (laughs) And sure enough, we go out there, we perform, and there's Larry David in the audience. And yeah, it was pretty amazing. And the coolest part was, you know, Adele's funny, you know, and so my sister, when she's performing as her, she does like all those, you know, she takes, it's like you're watching Adele, so she acts as if she's Adele, and when she would make one of her little jokes or something like that, there he was laughing, and when you can make Larry David laugh, you you know you've done a good job. That's true. Yeah. That's so funny
1: that you mentioned that, because literally yesterday, my boyfriend was watching Several episodes of Curb
0: back to back. Oh, it's so good! Yeah, he loves that show. It's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! <laughs> totally. Yeah. So that's my Larry David story. That's awesome! Yeah, I love it. Yeah, that's very really cool. cool. All right, your turn.
1: Okay, here's here's my three. And okay, then you pick the lie. Okay. Right. I once performed for Michael Jackson. I once met Joy Fatone at the mall. I shook
0: hands with Howie Mandel. Okay. Well, I'm going to call you out on shaking hands with Howie Mandel, because I happen to know Howie Mandel is a germaphobe who doesn't shake hands. That is very true, Cynthia.
1: However, this is the truth, because this was so long ago, it was pre germaphobia Really? Yes. You yeah. shook
0: hands with Howie Mandel? Yeah.
1: How did, did that happen? Okay, so when I first started with the Walt Disney Company, I was working at the the Disney Studios Park. I was backstage in the commissary sitting by the window and this guy walked by. I was thinking, you know, that looks like Howie Mandel and I just happened to be finished with my lunch. So I just walked outside to get a better look and it was so and he didn't have like a guard with him or like a guest relations person. So I just went up and said, hi, Mr. Mandel. I don't want to bother you. I just want to say I'm a fan of your work and thank you for making me laugh. And he shook my hand. He asked my name. He was very cordial and said it was nice to meet you and thanks for the compliment. And I said, all right, have a good day. And you know, I let him be. But it was so long ago that it was
0: it was pre, germophobe Wow. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. So I would have thought you met Joey fan, uh, Joey Fatone. Fatone yeah. Fatone, because
1: Back they're Orlando Boys. based. Yeah. Or Orlando,
0: exactly. You and know? I've never officially met him, but I have ran into him. Oh, how funny. Yeah. Um, one time I was sitting in a restaurant and he walked in and. His sister used to be the DJ at the Pulse nightclub. Did you know that? No, I didn't. She actually, not DJ, she ran karaoke night. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so met her a few times. So that's the one, so that's, is that the lie?
1: Yes, yeah, that was the lie. So I did perform for Michael Jackson.
0: Uh, That's incredible.
1: Yeah, but it wasn't just me. So this is when I worked at Disney, and I was doing the, I was doing the night parade at Magic Kingdom. Uh huh. And when they have a special VIP guest, they sit on the bridge. And so, and it, because it's kind of hidden from other guests, you can be a celebrity and not be seen sitting. So we're waving and changing our lights and whatever. And all of a sudden I hear, I love you guys. You guys oh. are great. And. We knew ahead of time that, you know, Michael Jackson's gonna be on the bridge. Oh my God. And just hearing that voice was like, yes. oh my God, Michael Jackson is talking about me.
0: Oh my god!
1: I mean, obviously it wasn't Paula that he was talking about. Oh yes, it but... was Paula.
0: He was totally talking just straight to you, well, I know of course,
1: it. Of course, But I mean, he's such a Peter Pan type, pers- right. was such a Peter Pan type personality that he would just thrilled to see Disney characters so to hear that pure joy coming out of Michael Jackson was just it was really cool right
0: oh that's awesome he yeah. I know he's got some he, issues and yep. I haven't fully um decided where I stand on them mm-hmm. uh but if you take those things away He's very charismatic and very likable, which doesn't mean anything because we know a lot of actually really bad people are. Right. But it's, man, it's hard not to like him. And talk about a musical genius. Oh, my God, yes. Holy cow. Holy cow. Wow. Those are cool stories. Thanks. So are yours. Oh, thanks. Okay. (laughs) Right in and tell us about your celebrity um, encounters. Yes. And if you happen to know Vince Vaughn and can set up, you know, I mean a great meet and great so I can kiss <laughs> him on the cheek. Yeah, I'll kiss him on the other cheek. <laughs> oh, my gosh.
1: And then we'll post a picture on the website.
0: Uh, yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> well, thanks, guys, for listening. Hey, please check out our website for pictures and for links corresponding to each episode at dollsanddoom.com. Follow us on social media and leave us a comment. And stay alive so you don't end up on the
1: wrong side of the grass. That's right. Bye.